Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited today to be interviewing Dr. David Ucko about his new book titled The Insurgent's Dilemma, published by Hearst in 2022, where he explains for us what the insurgent's dilemma is um, and then examines how recent insurgencies are trying to tackle this problem. Um, And essentially, the insurgent's dilemma is uh, the difficulty of asserting oneself, of violently challenging authority, and then of establishing sustainable power. Now, this may not necessarily be a new dilemma, but as the book really interestingly argues, the way in which insurgents are trying to resolve it is actually evolving. Um, And a lot of the examples um, that some of us might be quite familiar with from previous studies, from previous books, from the literature so far, uh, maybe need something of an update. Um, So I'm very excited to have Dr. David Ucko here today to explore um, three particularly adaptive strategies that he shows in his book Insurgents are using today. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a, it's a delight to come here and uh, talk about my recent book and my recent research, and I look forward to a, a spirited discussion. Great. Um, to start us off, please, could you introduce yourself and your academic background a, bu- uh, background a bit and explain how you came to write this book? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently employed at the College of International Security Affairs, which is one of the components of the U.S. National Defense University. Uh, CISA, as it's called, is really the uh, irregular warfare college of the U.S. military educational enterprise. And as such, uh, much of our bread and butter is insurgency, terrorism, non-state actors, as well as state use of uh, hybrid or uh, gray zone or uh, unrestricted warfare. There's so many terms out there that one sort of gets lost. Uh, but nonetheless, it's basically anything that's not like Saving Private Ryan. Uh, you know, it's not the conventional state-on-state conflicts that perhaps people most readily think of when they hear the term war. Uh, and uh, I've been uh, at this college, CISA, for uh, more than 10 years now. Uh, and it should be said that most of our student body is from abroad or from outside the United States. Uh, and it's not necessarily Denmark and Switzerland and Canada that we're talking about here. It's instead uh, the types of countries that are actually engaging uh, with these types of challenges. And so we have students from Mali, from the Philippines, Colombia, uh, Peru, what have you. Uh, and we sort of meet then in what it ends up being a very international classroom to discuss these types of challenges. And uh, I mentioned this because it actually does relate very closely to your question of how I came to write this book. Uh, I should say that I have been working on these sorts of issues for some time. Um, I did my sort of, you know, formative education in the late 1990s, uh, Kosovo campaign, etc. And I started working at the uh, uh, IISS in London just shortly after the, or shortly before, in fact, the 9-11 attacks. And so really, I've sort of cut my teeth with this issue of terrorism and insurgency. Uh, And in a sense, I guess I sort of floated along as we all discovered what this was all about. And we went back and looked at the scholarship and research and so on. Uh, And I think perhaps a book comes out of a confrontation or or collision, if you will, between that discussion that the West had about insurgency and terrorism in the aftermath of 9-11 and the experiences that I keep hearing about when I speak to my students from all across the world and the experiences they have trying to uh, understand the political violence that their governments face and then, of course, do something about it. Uh, So... 
what is that clash? What is this confrontation? Well, to my mind, most of the West's understanding of insurgency and counterinsurgency builds upon you know, a colonial history. I mean, there's a few select cases that have received just a disproportionate um, level of attention. Uh, Malaya, obviously, Algeria, uh, Northern Ireland to some degree, etc. And we had our engagements in Afghanistan and Iraq that have also, in a sense, monopolized the conversation. Much of that, much of the assumptions in that work really hark back to a sort of Maoist people's war type paradigm where the insurgents mobilize politically, build up militarily, and in a sense then become powerful enough to overthrow the state in some way or form, uh, or perhaps impose such costs that they can be taken seriously at the negotiating table and actually achieve their political objectives. But what I found increasingly speaking with my students was that the insurgent struggles that I kept talking about each and every year with different students coming from the same countries, they never seemed to progress. Uh, certainly, the insurgents were not mobilizing um, to the degree where they would in any way be able to defeat the state. Uh, but at the same time, you know, by virtue just of having students coming back and asking for advice, the states also were not, in a sense, defeating these insurgent movements. And so it just seems to be some sort of stasis. And as the years went on, I started thinking then about, well, hold on a second. What does this actually say about contemporary insurgency? Uh, this is, seems to be something a little bit uh, off in our respective theories of victory or how we seek to prevail or meet our political objectives. And that's really how I came to write this book. I wanted to get a sense of what is insurgency today. It is not seemingly leading to the Dien Bien Phu of the uh, Vietnam campaign where they famously sort of you know, kicked the French out. Um, and, and then I'd say, you know, the, the sort of the, the triggers for the book, if you will, if this was sort of just there swirling around in my head, were really the, uh, the defeat of the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka and the defeat of ISIS in uh, Iraq and Syria. Um, because in both cases, you had two very sophisticated non-state armed groups, really, in a sense, the cutting edge of contemporary insurgency. And they were defeated uh, really within three years. Uh, and, and, you know, I, we could say what we want about whether or not the governments involved have addressed the causative factors for insurgency or rebellion. Uh, and certainly we can look at ISIS continuing to launch terroristic attacks around the world. But in terms of it claiming space, being there, planting the flag and competing against the government on that front, these very powerful insurgencies basically got routed. And we see that again and again on a more micro level, even in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, leading up to, of course, the events of last August, one thing that, you know, NATO could always do was clear territory. Couldn't hold on to it very well, but clear territory. We see it in the context of UN peace operations. We defeated M23 when they sort of became an issue. And then we kind of gave up and then they came back. But at the end of the day, um, most of the governments that are threatened this way don't get overthrown. Now, of course, Afghanistan is an exception, and we can talk about that. Uh, and I do, uh, thankfully, had the chance to incorporate that in the book itself. And so uh, I do deal with it. But it seems to me that to be an exception that proves a rule in short. Uh, and that's why I wanted them to capture these trends. How come these uh, conflicts seem to just sort of simmer, uh, never quite boil over, uh, and then be dealt with really through palliative raids or strikes? only to go back to this sort of simmering effect where no one really wins, but the state, because it's not defeated, actually survives. And insurgency may even become a sort of a tertiary uh, issue for an elite more concerned with other issues. I mean, that, that's not the way 
I think insurgents want to win. That's not the way I think they want to operate. And so what are they going to do in return? And that, that, that those were the questions that I started exploring. And so that's a really wonderful starting point, because that is the sort of problem you sketch at the beginning of the book, that the insurgency may not go away, but you end up with this sort of stalemate. And in that situation, the state, by virtue of the fact that it is the state, um, kind of a stalemate is almost as good as victory for the state, whereas it's definitely not very near victory for the insurgents. Um, and part of you, part of the sort of diagnosis you have of why this is increasingly happening when that hasn't necessarily been the pattern we've seen with insurgents in the past. In fact, we did used to see insurgencies overthrow the state, um, which seems to be happening less. And you argue that it seems to be happening less um, because of four key changes that have happened since the end of the Cold War. Can you explain these to us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you put it exactly right. I, I frame insurgency as being reflective or a function of the social and political factors or context that we're operating in. And I think the, the, the context of the Cold War allowed for the sort of the Maoist conception to work with its three phases leading to ever-increasing political and military mobilization, whereas the factors today don't lend themselves to that same approach. And so what are those factors? What was it that worked then that doesn't work now and why? Well, so you point to four factors. And, and the first one is, is a bit of a no-brainer, I imagine. It's, it's just the urbanization aspect. I mean, we've gone from a predominantly rural population to what is increasingly now a predominantly urban um, uh, pattern of, of human living. And so between 1950 and, and 2015, for example, in the less developed regions of the world, uh, urbanization has almost tripled uh, from 17.7 to, I think, just just above uh, 50%. And that really makes a difference if you think about the Maoist conception of insurgency as you know, really tapping into that rural, rural population, mobilizing them away from the prying eyes of the center, uh, and, and being able to build in these peripheral areas fairly sophisticated conventional combat capabilities, which you can then use to harass and ultimately defeat state forces. Well, now you're going to have to do that within the context of an urban environment where the state is far more present and it's much more difficult to hide away in a so-called counter-state, this, this sort of Maoist conception of having actually you know, your own territory, your own people, where you can put in place your ideological project. So, so that's, that's the first factor. Urbanization really changes and forces then certain choices, but forces insurgents to be a little bit more discreet, perhaps a little bit less flagrant, and to uh, perhaps obscure or camouflage a project in ways that they did not uh, hitherto. And, and that really relates to the second factor. In fact, all four factors are closely related, which has to do with the normative environment. So in the 1950s and the 1960s and so on, obviously we had uh, huge waves of decolonization and imperial sort of withdrawal. And so at that point, uh, both the United States and the Soviet Union, to some degree, accepted the uh, flux and, and even the armed convulsions that saw local elites and local communities take control of their own nation states. And so we had various movements of national liberation, and, and there was sort of an acquiescence, even perhaps some, some appeal to that because it was basically about a bunch of people trying to figure out how they were going to fit into the international system of states uh, without necessarily rupturing that state, but breaking away from the, the yoke of empire, etc. 
Uh, and then, of course, during the, as the Cold War became more, more um, uh, intense, uh, and and you know Khrushchev and then Kennedy started experimenting with you know sponsoring uh, uh, insurgent movements. Again, this was something that 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 became part of the norm. Uh, it was a, a more conducive environment to insurgent struggles, morally and also instrumentally. Then and today, of course, I think since nine eleven. Insurgency and particularly terrorism means something very different, and there's far less time and far less understanding for groups using violence and terrorism to meet their political objectives. Uh, so, as soon as you start doing that, in fact, you will uh, have this sort of you know the terrorist label foisted upon you. You will most likely face pressures for your prescription legally, and that, of course, has all sorts of uh, consequences since 9-11, legal loopholes that could have been exploited previously have been closed off. And so the climate normatively for insurgent movements is far less welcoming. Um, while states have also become far better equipped, in a sense, to deal with these types of challenges through standoff weaponry, uh, mobility, increases in mobility and surveillance. So, so that's, uh, that, that's the second thing. Uh, and, and, and the third factor then uh, really has to, well, I mean, in a sense, I, I touched on already, uh, the, this, the greater state support for these types of, um, uh, in, in fighting these types of challenges. Uh, and and in, in having the legal architecture uh, the, and the, um, the greater uh, security assistance that we provide for countries engaged in insurgency and terrorism, because the terrorist insurgents are very much now the bad guys, uh, whereas Prior to 9-11, during the Cold War, there was the chance to sort of don this mantle of, of, of normative appeal. Um, and then conversely, the fourth factor then has to do with the reduction in state sponsorship for the insurgent groups themselves. Uh, certainly, it still goes on. I mean, that's clear. Uh, but if you compare it to the quantities and overtness of state assistance during the Cold War, uh, both have diminished pretty radically. And so while we still see state sponsorship of insurgent movements, and in fact, that still has a categorical difference, it makes a categorical difference for the fates of these insurgent movements, uh, usually such sponsorship is less overt, it has to be more discreet, uh, there's a sort of absurd yet nonetheless uh, a desperate attempt to deny that it's happening, uh, whether we're talking about Russia and Ukraine or, or you know, Pakistan with the Taliban. Um, but and for that reason, even though we may not believe those the, those sort of uh, explanations, the assistance has to be a little bit less flagrant, uh, and so that also then adds up to the relative weakness of insurgents vis-a-vis the state. Um, so the, the the cumulative effect of these four factors is that what we used to see in the Cold War, which uh, Status Calavas and and Laya Balsells speak of as a robust insurgency, that is to say, insurgent organizations that really rival the power of states and their conventional uh, armies, we don't really see that so much anymore. Uh, And why is that? To some degree, I think it's a lack of capacity. They simply cannot acquire those types of combat capabilities. But I think there's also an issue with motivation in that once you start behaving like a state militarily, you also then make yourself vulnerable to what states most of all like to do in the face of insurgency, which is, you know, bomb them, because that's something that is, is relatively easy for states to do, certainly far easier than to deal with the political and economic and, and social factors that spawn these types of movements to begin with. So th- there seems to be to be a categorical change. I, I, I'm sort of, you know, instinctively um, 
skeptical or, or I sort of take a, a somewhat uncertain look at some of these uh, sort of quantitative data sets and war termination. I find the coding quite suspect, but nonetheless, in reviewing those types of quantitative data sets, it seems to me that this shift that I talk about is, uh, is, is reflected in the figures and the statistics. Um, and I look at the Uppsala database and all these sorts of things. Um, what I would say is obviously a huge exception to this is this notion of state sponsorship. Where states are helping insurgent movements, you can sort of break through the, the uh, changed uh, context that, that imprisons or, or impedes other movements. Um, but So one could look, for example, at what happened in Libya. I mean, you know, certainly I don't think the anti-Qaddafi resistance would have had such an easy time overthrowing Qaddafi had it not been for NATO being there to, to do their thing. Um, similarly, you know, to some degree, our experience in, in Afghanistan, both in 2001 and in 2021, um, relates to the support for the insurgent, the victorious insurgent movement in both of those settings. Uh, and there are other examples that I deal with in the book. But absent, absent that state uh, sponsorship, which again, I, I argue, and I think the evidence bears this out, is less common and less generous, um, there is a dilemma to contend with for the world's insurgent movements. And the question then is, of course, you know, if you are interested in winning, if you are interested in achieving political goals through political violence, then what do you do about that? Uh, what do you do when you sort of surveil the aggregate experience of your peers and realize that in most respects, in most cases, you don't get very far? Right. And this is exactly the um, kind of meat of the book, um, which is it, it, after laying all this out, which you've just very helpfully done for us, um, you look at three adaptive approaches to insurgency. So as you said, they looked at the landscape, they're going, hmm, okay, um, there's less outside support than maybe there used to be. Outside support that makes a difference seems to need to be bigger now than it maybe needed to be before. Um, okay, what are we going to do? And you offer in the book, you look at three particular adaptations. Um, but I want to kind of focus on the one for now that I certainly found to be the idea that spoke to the largest number of examples I can think of, this idea of localized insurgency um, that seems to really speak quite exactly to some examples you've already brought up. Um, M23, Afghanistan before 2021, um, Colombia, as you discuss in the book. Um, but this idea of kind of going, hmm, well, we can't act like a state per se and take them on directly. They'll just bomb us. So instead, why don't we just do everything else and actually run the territory because they might be able to bomb us, but they can't hold the territory um, and kind of work in not quite the liminal spaces, um, but sort of challenge political control, not purely or not initially on a national level. Um, can you... Give us a, obviously, much better than my brief summary, because you're the one who actually wrote it. Um, can you explain for us how localized insurgency offers an adaptation when yeah. faced with this dilemma? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you summarized it very well. Uh, no, it's exactly that. And I think the reason why it speaks to those cases is perhaps because this one, in contrast to the two other approaches that I detail, doesn't necessarily have the same degree of intentionality. It could be that some of these movements localize their struggle, not because it's necessarily part of this, this strategy, but rather because it's sort of the correlation of forces. So that's where they get to, and then they just get, kind of get stuck. But I guess the difference between that and what I talk about is not is sort of not 
not regretting that fact, but in fact, in fact, embracing it to some degree. So during the Cold War, many of these competitions really were zero sum games over the capital. So you control the capital, you control the government, then you know you have one power. And that's, you know, what we see in, in China with 1949, Vietnam, you know, the insurgency in El Salvador was uh, vying for that as well. And there's any number of examples. But reviewing the, the countries that are faced with insurgency today, I don't see a progression towards that type of uh, outcome. And, and while there may be a zero-sum game to some degree, I would instead uh, contend that in many of these cases, the insurgents have their place. The, the elite, whether it's the political or the economic or both sort of entwined, have, have theirs. And they kind of learn to coexist in some respect. And you kind of have these informal um, arrangements that congeal over time. And I would say that there, there is obviously a fairly generous literature out there that speaks to these sorts of things like rebel governance or shared sovereignty or what have you. But it is, it is not informed to the degree necessary, a conversation on insurgency, I don't think, and certainly not on counterinsurgency. Because what happens is, for example, if we go into, let's say, Nigeria, and we think, oh, let's let's now make sure that we do a, a proper counterinsurgency campaign in the Northeast, where uh, ISWAP is uh, you know, uh, causing all sorts of instability, well, that kind of presumes that the government in Nigeria is actually interested in holding and in governing that part of the country. And it seems to me, just again, speaking to many of my students, uh, that that's not the case. That's kind of like a, a faulty assumption going in. Uh, and so effectively, uh, in a more globalized environment where cities can uh, engage with each other transnationally, where markets are not necessarily based on your productive capacity, but perhaps more on a service industry or, or, or whatever it might be, uh, there's not the same interest as we might presume about satisfying the sort of Bavarian ideal of a state, uh, you know, governing your territory and your people border from border to border. So if, if there's not that interest, then insurgent movements can find ample space within these types of pockets of abandoned populations to do their thing. Now, of course, you know, they have to content themselves with not having the capital but it seems to me that that actually is less of an impediment than it used to be. For example, you look again at ISWAP, what do they actually want? So here you have an Islamic State affiliate in, in northeast Nigeria. Do they really want to go south and take Abuja and, and take Nigeria and be a state? Obviously not. They, they find the whole state system completely incompatible with their ideology. So they want to create some sort of caliphate, a sort of a resurrection of the Sokoto Caliphate that, that uh, was in that part of the world previously. But what does that actually mean? How far does this extend? And is that really a realistic um, theory of victory for them, given what happened, for example, in Iraq and Syria? It seems to me that a lot of this is more about sort of the, um, the expressive aspects of insurgency, which can be communicated very effectively via social media uh, and, and provide a profile and, and, and a sense of power without necessarily becoming the state or even necessarily governing. And it's ironic in a sense, because much as states and their counterinsurgency efforts seem to really falter when it comes to the governance piece, I would argue that many of our non-state armed group adversaries are similarly useless at exactly that. We don't, in contrast to Mao, who really 
insisted upon the political center around which everything else would sort of hang, uh, many of our adversaries seem more content to kind of, in a sort of rather macho way, use violence uh, and cause casualties and, and damage and maybe do a little bit of service provision on the side, but we don't see a very serious political governance content in their strategies. And so if, if you don't have that insistence, if you don't have the requirement, you can do far more at the localized level without necessarily then you know gaining all the trappings of a sort of nascent nation state. Mm-hmm. And then we can see this you know across the Sahel. In Mali, you have uh, this idea of having the southern uh, more more developed areas. There's a Mali utile, and the north is called the Mali inutile, or the useless Mali. And of course, that's also where you then see the, the Tuareg rebellions. That's where you see AQIM. That's where you see uh, uh, other non-state armed groups uh, uh, using violence. But again, will they ever go south and take Bamako? I, I, I don't. I personally, I don't. I don't think so. In Eastern DRC, there's been violence now for how many decades? Atrocious. Uh, levels of, of death and destruction, but I, I don't see this necessarily affecting matters uh, in in the sta- in the nation state capital in Kinshasa. Um, and you mentioned Colombia, and we can we can talk about that in more detail. But even in Colombia, which is a fairly successful counterinsurgency campaign, it was undermined ultimately by in, an entrenched and enduring and entrenched division between the west of the country uh, and the east of the country. Uh, the developed um, uh, um, more populated part, and on the other hand, it's of the hinterland or the periphery where FARC used to do their thing, and where in the absence of really good governance in, this, in effect, people have to make whatever decisions they're making about whether to cultivate drugs, whether participate in gangs, or even join an insurgency. So localization then uh, is, is in a sense a reaction to the uh, myth of, of a barbarian state uh, and it allows insurgent groups to survive, possibly even thrive, uh, and, and to retain their brand and their image internationally without provoking an armed attack by the state, precisely because they limit their struggle to those lands and territories and, and people that the state perhaps already to some degree has abandoned. Um, well, and it yeah. provides benefits as well to some degree to some insurgencies, depending on their political program as it exists, right? You can think of, especially my research generally focuses on Africa, and it's pretty well known that uh, nation-state borders were drawn pretty arbitrarily. Um, And so it can actually, as you said with Mali, help the political agenda of the insurgents to go, actually, these are our people, and these are the ones we're going to look after. We're not fussed about the other ones, even if technically they're part of the same national borders. It actually can, in some ways, enable more political consistency. Um, And the other kind of piece that really uh, jumped out at me around the way in which changes since the Cold War have enabled this is the capital city, one of the reasons it used to matter was that's where radio and television was. That's Control of that is what got you into the United Nations, to the General Assembly meeting in September, where you could meet all the other countries and make deals with them, um, which could fuel your economy. Uh, you don't need to have the capital city anymore to have access to the world economy. You don't need the capital city anymore to have access to radio and television. Um, and so it's in some ways seems that depending on the way in which an insurgent insurgency is constituated, it, depending on kind of what they say their goals are, localized insurgency 
actually can provide political benefits by allowing them to be consistent with messaging and allowing them to go, oh, actually, we don't need that bit over there that we used to need. So why waste the effort? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And I think your point about media is, is spot on. Uh, and it's just, it's just the pattern that I see repeating itself uh, in so many different places. I mean, even now we're looking at what's happening in, in, in Mozambique. And again, like, you know, I don't think that struggle is ever really going to result in a regime change and this group becoming the new government. It just does not seem... So instead, I think they're reacting to the reality of, of statehood uh, rather than perhaps, if I may be uh, perhaps a, a little bit generalizing here, a, a very Western conception of it. I mean, you know, you grow up with the atlas, you grow up looking at these borders and these maps, as you say, many of them very uh, artificial, and yet we kind of assume that governments have this uh, uh, interest in, in living up to that standard, living up to those borders. And, and I just don't think that's the case. And obviously that has huge implications for how we can partner with threatened governments to find the best solution. And then on, on that front, uh, you know, I, 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 I've quoted Ken Menkhaus many times. I think he's a real, uh, really a fantastic pioneer in this research. You know, is there a space to have a more decentralized conception of the state in which you have various local level um, intermediaries or interlocutors, perhaps even rivals, cobbled together on aggregate sufficient governance to, to kind of veer off instability. And if you're going to, in a sense, delegate power to the local level in that respect, what are the conditions for doing so? What are the red lines? What kind of enforcement mechanism can you actually uh, hope for or, or need to retain in order to ensure those red lines are not um, breached? Uh, right, and it, it raises other theoretical debates for us, right? What does the word warlord mean if we're thinking about this sort of context? And um, what does the word, what does the phrase legitimate actor mean? Who gets invited to political dialogue? Um, it kind of breaks open a lot of concepts that we've inherited and were quite useful. But I think a lot of us have been sort of struggling to apply um, in more recent contexts. Um, so it's a really sort of helpful kind of poking at a thing to see if we can get a different view. Um, and so I want to poke at it a little bit, um, which is to link something you mentioned at the beginning. What differences do we see between urban versus rural localized insurgencies? Because localized insurgencies in a lot of ways, and kind of the way we've been talking about it already, kind of lends itself, at least in one's mind, more easily to the idea of rural, where the state is not there, it's harder for them to get there, etc. Um, but you show in the book that this localized insurgency adaptation can also happen in urban areas. What does that look like? similarly or differently than in sort of the hinterlands. Yeah, no, exactly. So so I, uh, in a previous question, I was talking, you know, about the urbanization issue. And of course, the next thing I say is that there's all these sort of, you know, uh, rural insurgencies out there. So what am I saying? So you're absolutely right. Uh, in our imagination, the localization of insurgency meshes quite nicely with the notion of an abandoned hinterland that the state elite or the political economic elite has sort of given up on. And, and, I, and that, that does happen with some regularity. But I actually start off the chapter, you know, to speak about the urban um, component of this, because it seems to me as you have this process of urbanization, as these countries, cities grow and grow in, in fairly unsustainable ways, what you find as well is that slums and shanty towns, etc., also grow because these cities are just not made to, to, to take on this rapid growth in population. 
what does that do? It creates then pockets of these cities where, again, the state control or state surveillance or state presence in terms of you know, governance and, and the provision of service are all very weak. And so I speak uh, quite extensively to what happens when these areas are then taken on by oppositional actors. Oppositional actors driven both by the opportunity to rebel because of the weakness of the state in these areas, and perhaps also by the motivation to rebel, uh, because they see the current political status quo as uh, completely unjust, perhaps for some, some uh, legitimacy, because, of course, in many of these uh, cities, the, con- the inequality is just so pronounced and so evident. Uh, and we see this, you know, the gated communities, uh, or, or, or the, you know, if you think about most of the cities, uh, most of the big cities in, in sort of Latin America, uh, or even in Asia or Africa, for that matter, uh, and not to mention even in the West, a very stark delineation between the haves and the have-nots. And so this opportunity and this motivation for rebellion, and what does that look like in an urban environment? Uh, I start off looking predominantly at Latin America as being the most urbanized continent, uh, and I think there is great richness in the experiences of various what have been called criminal insurgencies that are... Uh, um, basically becoming the government in abandoned shanty towns and, and projects. Uh, I, I discussed, for example, the case of uh, Commando Vermelo and Rio de Janeiro, uh, which has, in its effort to seek profit through drug trafficking, also taken on some government functions and, effect, and in effect, also seen as a legitimate representative of these sort of abandoned communities. I also look at how this is uh, replicated itself in, in uh, Haiti, uh, in El, El Salvador, of course, and really along the sort of drug um, uh, path uh, that, that uh, unfortunately, of course, affects so much of South America going into North America. Um, and, and in a sense, you could say, well, those are not insurgent movements, so you're confusing the terms of analysis. But to my mind, even though the ultimate strategic objective of these groups is profit-driven, they're acting in very political manners. They're driven by very political uh, factors, and they need to be addressed in far more than just a crime-fighting manner. In effect, I, I would say that they actually share far more with insurgent movements in the sense that they they govern, they decide who, who lives and dies, they have territorial continuity, and they're creating effectively a, a no-go area for the state. Um, and so we have to kind of have a political counter that addresses some of those drivers as well as just the, sort of the cr- criminal behavior that tends, unfortunately, to get most of our attention. Um, so, so that is, in a sense, the, the urbanized um, variant of localized insurgency is not entirely new. I mean, I speak a little bit uh, about precedents in, in, uh, in the book. Uh, and the difference, however, I would contend is that Controlling these areas of these sprawling cityscapes is not a stepping stone to overthrowing the government. It is, in fact, to create a, a parastate, if you will, uh, that lives uh, in parallel to the government and, and benefits from some of its strengths and exploits some of its weaknesses um, and basically allows the groups in control to satisfy their objectives, which, which in many of the cases that I look at then is profit-driven. But I also then you know, shift gears slightly and look at what uh, Muqtada al-Sadr tried to do in uh, Baghdad or Sadr City, where he basically controlled this shanty town 
used the people power that he could then mobilize for political effect and did not seek to then use that power to violently overthrow the state, but rather to affect policy, to shape decision-making and become a politically viable force through politics and through violence. And, and I think that that is uh, quite a forceful way of going about it. Um, so yeah. that actually brings me quite nicely to your second adaptive strategy um, of infiltrative insurgencies, which combine political party organization and also some violence to achieve their goals. What does this method of insurgency look like? Yeah, no, it is actually a very good segue because, of course, uh, Muqtad al-Sadr, in a sense, actually combines to some degree the localization and the infiltrative in the sense that he then positions himself to become more and more of a politician and less and less of a militia leader. But the point that the, this 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 um, lens provides is that uh, the line between or the dividing line between insurgent actor on the outside attacking the system and someone who's inside the system and using violence and politics at the same time, that line can be very thin. And, and we haven't really accounted for that, I don't think, in the way that we talk about insurgency or in our scholarship. Uh, perhaps the most, uh, uh, the easiest way of conveying the point here is, is sort of the Trojan horse. It's, it, the point that I'm making is that democracies in particular are very vulnerable to actors who say they want to play by the political game, but at the same time retain uh, armed activity on the sidelines so as to clear the obstacles and to make their uh, luck or fortunes in this game all the more easier to obtain. Um, now, uh, the obvious counterpoint will be, well, you can't do that. If you are going to be a political party, it means that you have to demobilize, you know, the DDR process, etc. Uh, my point is that, well, that assumes that uh, the relationship between these political actors and the violent wing is uh, explicit and well-known and recognized and owned up to. Uh, but what I try to trace uh, in, in the chapter are those cases where the relationship to the violence is far more ambiguous and downplayed, and perhaps even denied, and sort of the strategic ambiguity, if you will. And I say I, I try to do this because, you know, obviously it's very difficult to prove something that is meant not to be seen. Uh, this is not something that these insurgents actors are... are um, at all comfortable owning up to. The whole strategy relies upon presenting yourself as a legitimate political actor, interested in democracy, interested in peace. And you can't then at the same time be a terror organization, if you will. And yet there are distinct advantages to playing on both sides of the fence, to having the best of both worlds, to get the uh, legitimacy and the recognition and the stage of being a political party and also, in a sense, shielding yourself from repression in that manner, because doing so would come at a high moral cost for the powers that be. And on the other hand, using violence at a low level where you can deny it, where you can uh, claim no connection to it, to silence critics, uh, to get rid of obstacles, uh, you know, low-level terror, effectively. And I look at a few different cases in the book. So uh, one is, for example, uh, the, uh, the Evo Morales case in Bolivia, which uh, there I, I rely heavily on the scholarship of uh, David Spencer, a colleague at the National Defense University, who, who illustrates how quite clearly the rise of Evo Morales in Bolivia was intertwined with the interests of a uh, cocaine smuggling uh, or cocaine trafficking network that used violence, that created incidents, also while you know exploiting very legitimate grievances with the Colombian uh, state at that point. 
but in a sense, the notion of just being a social movement organization, that, that sort of uh, way of presenting themselves was, was very instrumental, very helpful, but also in a sense, quite false. Um, and so I look at a few other examples like that. I mean, one exa- one case that people might be fairly um, familiar with is, of course, the relationship between Sinn Féin and the, uh, the IRA during the, uh, the final uh, decade or so of, of the Troubles. Uh, and here you have a political wing and a military wing that, you know, the political wing says that they have no relation to the military. But of course, we know that's not true. But it's sort of, in a sense, trying to benefit from the veiled threat of coercion, all while becoming a respectable political player that can then shape the, the outcome of the conflict. And this is often something, reading this section of the book, that kind of brought me in mind of the mafia. Um, Maybe not necessarily the real mafia, um, especially given the difficulties in researching um, their methods, especially the active ones, but the mafias we might be used to seeing in TV or films. Um, This idea of kind of playing both sides and controlling the local in order to give you a platform for the municipal or the state or the federal level. Um, that these, you know, having multiple tools and essentially having a tool that your opponents politically don't have um, can be very effective. Um, so again, it was um, a really useful example to see in the book to go, ah, right, this is a model for a thing I already recognize, a way of organizing it in a way that we haven't put together before. Yeah, and it is a very helpful lens as well because the mafia, you know, generally speaking, you know, they they are not interested in the max amount of violence. In fact, there's key interest in keeping violence just at the threshold where the people who need to know get to know, uh, and the people whose behavior needs to be sh- changed uh, change their behavior. And, and that's that's a trend throughout the cases that I discuss. I mean, given the fragility of democracy in some of the uh, countries in South and Central Asia, for example. I do talk a little bit about the experience with MQM in Pakistan, uh, in Karachi, uh, and I do talk about Nepal quite extensively and the way in which uh, the Maoist organization there has embraced peace but still sustained a pattern of low-level violence against critics, journalists, anyone who sort of seeks to to, to um, limit their power in a sense. Uh, but you can also go back historically. Uh, it's a quite interesting, actually, I, I find the parallels between these sorts of experiences and what the, the Nazi party, uh, the NSDAP, did in uh, Weimar, in the Weimar Republic in the 1920s in Germany, uh, where effectively Hitler, after the, the uh, failed uh, uh, Munich uh, uh, beer hall putsch, in a sense, you know, he goes to prison and he rethinks his approach and he figures that, okay, we're going to keep the militias on, we're going to keep the SA on as sort of like a, uh, a way to intimidate and to coerce, but we're not going to strike out against the state because we're just going to end up in the same rut. Instead, we're going to use what he called then sort of the legal path, you know, create a party, uh, use that party to infiltrate the state from inside out while on the outside you silence the critics, critics and you use what they call then versammlungsterror, uh, that's to say, like the, the terrorism of gatherings. Again, non-lethal perhaps, but f- terrifying if, if you're on the wrong end uh, of that crowd. Uh, and, and it is then a way of, of keeping violence at a threshold that allows you to build power gradually, gain more seats. The more seats you have in government, the more you can change a policy, the more you can make the environment more conducive to the next step. Until suddenly, of course, as we know, Hitler is actually elected democratically, and off we go. 
Uh, and so it is, it is not an easy task for insurgents to combine these types of things. It relies a lot upon duplicity, ambiguity, deniability, etc. But when it works, it, yeah, really intense organization and planning. This isn't something you can do accidentally. Right, right, absolutely. And and it, one of the key weaknesses is that if you have a dedicated hardcore that really just wants to fight the system, convincing them of the merits of being in the system can be quite challenging, and you often end up with sort of splinter organizations. But I would say that even when it doesn't work for the insurgents, the consequences for the state can be quite drastic, you know, leading to the corruption of democratic standards, leading to other parties perhaps, you know, tooling up and, and sort of an escalation of coercion and a blending then of licit and illicit forms of competition, all in the name of one democratic project. And, and to step back from that precipice can be very challenging. Right. I mean, it can weaken the democratic state because the insurgents are winning, or it could be because the threat of insurgents enable sort of authoritarian movement. Um, there are a lot of ways that this can go wrong for the state without the insurgent necessarily succeeding. Um, so that was a very helpful second model. Um, to move then to your third model, uh, ideational insurgency, which um, I'd particularly be interested in having you explain to us kind of how ideational insurgency starts and kind of becomes a thing. Because uh, you talk about in the book how it often starts from a place of sort of social malaise and social media, but obviously not everyone who's whinging on social media then becomes an insurgent. So can you help us explain sort of how we start from this place and get to what you call ideational insurgency? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'll take one step back, which is just to say that every insurgency, of course, you know, seeks to marry a particular strategy uh, with the exploitation of the particular grievances at hand. And so obviously every society has their own grievances, so that's, that's a given. Uh, but what's the strategy and how do you, in a sense, use these to mobilize support? And on the ideational piece, I mean, even going way back before social media really took off, you have then, you know, various theorists, both in the sort of Islamist camp, but also in the right-wing extremist camp, talking about leaderless resistance, uh, and the notion that you know, if the most robust and resilient organization is the one where you don't have set structures or set hierarchy, where you have basically individual cells or nodes capable of autonomous decision making, yet in service of a common project, uh, and that's quite interesting. I mean, obviously, the neo Nazis try to do this in the U.S. and other Western contexts because they realize that as soon as they, in a sense, added structure and added predictability they also became far easier targets for law enforcement. And so the idea was, you know, let's, let's dismiss all that structure, let's dismiss the hierarchy and make ourselves more like a mist. So it's impossible for law enforcement to sort of grab at us. Um, so the difference, however, now is that, you know, while, while uh, those theorists, theoreticians might have been onto something, it was very difficult to instrumentalize it. Social media comes in, and what we find then is actually the ability to anonymously create very strong fabric and very strong bonds uh, between individuals and between individual groupings and, and sort of small communities, whereby leaderless resistance actually ends up being viable. You can do so many things online now, and more people and people some people spend more time online on an online identity than they do perhaps even in in the real world, if, if you will. And so 
you, you marry that strategy then with the you know predictable ubiquity of various grievances in a society, and if you could channel those grievances and sort of turn them towards a particular ideology, whether it's a framing of a problem or a proposal of a solution, all of a sudden you end up with a largely sort of deterritorialized network of fellow believers, some of whom are just going to be you know providing some sort of you know ideological support to the movement. And some of whom will go the extra step and perhaps commit acts of violence in, in the name of this ideology, which in and of itself then allows for it to spin out from cyberspace into the real world, into the society that we live in, then gain the attention of mainstream news sources and mainstream discussion and sort of, in a sense, infuse renewed energy into the process. And so I look at two key cases. I mean, a little bit more than that, but there's two cases that I examine in depth. One is the way in which ISIS, having confronted the insurgents' dilemma of, of being you know, fairly well beaten in, in Iraq and, and Syria, uh, then go on to experiment with so-called virtual caliphate. That's to say, how can we do these things online? How can we mobilize and keep our brand relevant uh, through internet communications? And not just communications, but actually a sense of belonging online. So it's, it's far more than just sort of didactic, uh, didactic messaging, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not. That was more the Al-Qaeda model. One of the key innovations for ISIS was a far more participatory model where you had you know, web fora and various channels, etc., where it wasn't just the leader speaking to the followers, but the followers were encouraged and also lionized for just being part of the movement. And then they become they come to feel powerful. They come to feel... Uh, respected and important, uh, and therefore spend more time in this community and create a sort of gravitational pull for others who may be aggrieved, angry at something, and look for answers. So Islamic State is the first case that I look at, but but I transition from Islamic State because ultimately their theory of victory is still predicated on this caliphate idea, which is territorial, which is physical. And so I, I feel like there's a, a certain sort of dead end in terms of their ideational strategy. At some point, they're going to have to fix the whole uh, how do we control territory quandary, at which point I foresee that they'll probably meet the same fate as they already have in Iraq, Syria, but also arguably in Marawi and Philippines and elsewhere. So then I, I, I move instead to look at uh, right-wing violent extremism in the United States, uh, which I, I, in the chapter, I call the alt-right because I thought that was, in a sense, the most interesting... Um, component of this movement insofar as internet mobilization is concerned. And what's interesting about this alt-right then is that rather than trying to seek territorial conquest, I mean, they don't want to create a new state out of the United States. They want to, they want the United States to become what they think is right, which is sort of like a white ethnostate. And so how do they do that? It's not territorial conquest, it's really cultural conquest. And so then that gets me into some ideas about you know, uh, Gramsci, the Italian Marxist, and the notion of challenging cultural hegemonies to create political process. How do you do that? Well, today, you can challenge cultural hegemony through very effective, intense, and aggressive online activity, uh, where you, in a sense, indoctrinate individuals, you lead them along, you, you show them uh, who is to blame for all the malaise that you might feel, uh, and and so I speak in in the book about uh, Durkheim's theories of uh, anime, the notion of you know quick socio political change, bringing forth uh, a sense of 
uprootedness or disorientation. How do you exploit that to explain, no, well, it's all their fault. It's all their fault. And no one's talking about it because political correctness has gone crazy. And, you know, we're all sort of, you know, owned by, you know, the Zionist, uh, you know, all these the, a great sort of, you know, way of viewing the world that is very, can be very comforting to those who are angry and aggrieved and looking for easy answers to complicated questions. If you could blame someone, uh, it's so much easier to get on with your day and to feel that you've been wronged rather than perhaps think about your own uh, failings or, or limitations. And so this all happens, you know, this is just uh, the, the dark underbelly of the internet that we're all familiar with, but, you know, try to avoid. Well, some people, of course, actively embrace it. And through that, through that embrace can become so convinced of, of the rottenness of the system that they then go out and actually uh, cause acts of violence. Now, these organizations, again, a little bit like the infiltrative lens, they certainly seem to commission these acts of violence, yet they also realize that if you're too closely related to the violence, that can have legal um, implications. And so it's sort of this, I, I explore in the book, how do you, in a sense, create the mood music for uh, violent attack without being legally responsible um, for, for, those, uh, for, for the carnage that follows? Uh, and interestingly, if you look at the alt-right and some of their key leaders, they actually spend an inordinate amount of time figuring out exactly how to draw the balance. Uh, how do you, in a sense, lead someone to the precipice of causing a violent attack without necessarily being caught then and, and being liable through legal follow-through? Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of where I get at with the ideational insurgency. It is violent, it is, uh, but it is fundamentally about the, the ideas that that spawn this territor- deterritorialist network into activity, into changing norms over time until you have, in effect, disturbingly, I would say, in the United States, a far higher tolerance now of uh, extreme right-wing talking points than, you know, let's say, uh, 10, 15 years ago. Thank you for explaining that. I have uh, both a thought and a further question. Um, In a lot of ways, it's quite interesting to sort of see the idea of leading to the precipice, but not getting not being the one to push them over so that you avoid legal liability. In a lot of ways, that seems somewhat reflective of the pre-9-11 attitude towards state sponsorship of someone else's terrorism. Um, That was in some ways kind of the legal loophole as well. You know, well, they're not terrorists in our place, so it's okay. Or the kind of the norms around it were different. Um, And in some senses, you already talked about at the beginning of this interview, that since 9-11, a lot of those legal and normative loopholes have tightened. Um, and it's interesting to sort of hearing you talk about, obviously, the ideational um, insurgency almost sounds like we're coming to a similar point in this particular um, aspect of political violence, um, where there do seem to be more of these loopholes, but the norms are changing around whether that's allowed. Um, but that kind of leads me to uh, the question that Uh, I would, I am only asking this because I know you actually talk about it in your book, otherwise this would be a very unfair question. Um, But as you've mentioned a little bit so far, and you've already discussed um, with relation to um, infiltrative insurgencies, there are some pretty obvious challenges to, for a state trying to counter ideational insurgency. Um, And yet in the book, you do give some recommendations about how governments can try to counter this particular strand of insurgency. Would you mind explaining for our audience, particularly given the relevance of this in some of the countries I know we have listeners from, for example, the United States, 
what those yeah, might be? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so it's, I'm happy you point that out. So, so um, I should say that the structure of the book, as you know, and as, as I know, um, I do speak about these three adaptive strategies that come out of the insurgents' dilemma. So that's sort of like the first half. And then I do provide for each type uh, options of response. I wouldn't say that I, I am I can provide a strategy because, of course, so much of it is contextually specific. But there is enough precedent out there to speak about sort of a, a options, a menu of options, if you will, and and what they can provide and what their pitfalls are. And, and you know, so ideational insurgency is no exception. And you're absolutely right. You know, we have um, tried as a global community of states to limit how. Um, or to, to tighten what it means to be liable. So even if, for example, you have not com- conducted a terrorist attack, if you have been spreading terrorist content on social media sites, etc., then in some legal contexts, that can actually be enough for you to be liable. Uh, and and there, there's obviously, I mean, you know, on, on the face of it, that's great. Uh, but on the other hand, you have to be very careful when you start criminalizing speech. Uh, not least where the speech is itself modulated precisely not to be um, so stark as to make the legal case a slam dunk. Because then you're dealing with this sort of gray content uh, where all of a sudden, you know, is it, um, if you, um, is it, is it criminal? Like, are you liable for, uh, you know, for, for slander or for, 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 I mean, <laughs> talking ill of people or saying, you know, I, I, uh, I hate this or I hate that. I mean, you know, the internet has always been priced as an open medium for communication. Uh, and, and if you start thinking, well, all of this communication could lead to a terrorist attack, and so we're going to criminalize all of it, you can see how that's going to turn into a very dark uh, space. Well, uh, and to even take it beyond the internet, I mean, this is exactly the problem of Thomas Beckett, right? Um, I wish someone would rid me of this damn monk was the, I mean, probably apocryphal, quote from the king so that's a person in charge essentially having a public moment of annoyance and then claiming at least that oh well they took those words and decided their own thing about them that yes resulted in horrible violence but i shouldn't be punished because that was just me kind of thinking out loud um which is very much one of the things that is happening now kind of oh well i was just on a talk show on tv to talk about this thing that bothers me i certainly never meant for people to go storm, you know, a government right. building. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. This is a, you know, in some ways, this is an existing problem that is now massively expanded because of media interfaces. Um, but as you said, also about people being very clever about knowing the limits of free speech laws. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's one thing to to, to delete the stuff that, that is just, you know, absolutely... Uh, noxious uh pro- you know propaganda or like you know kill this person he lives at this address whatever all of that stuff we already have fairly good uh, legislation for uh, but the problem is of course when it's more ambiguous or even perhaps when it's not just one post that is the problem but rather a sense of belonging within a community that is engages in conversation and sort of you know operates perhaps by dog whistles or, or perhaps a funny meme that kind of makes you laugh at the other but at the same time also builds receptivity to the notion of committing violence against the other. So we have that all that complexity. And, and you know, governments are trying to do something about this, but they are struggling. And so, for example, one of the issues that I deal with in the book is the attempt by the European Union, uh, and they, they passed this bill uh, in, in, I think, uh, 2021, 
where basically online platforms were forced to remove terrorist content within one hour of it being flagged by a specialized government agency. Uh, and so obviously that sounds fantastic, right? We don't want terrorist content on the internet, but given the ambiguity of what is and what is not, and given the fines for non-compliance on the part of the social media companies, what you're going to have is probably fairly fragrant over-deletion. And then that gets into issues of you know, freedom of speech and it gets into issues of like, what is the internet for, et cetera, and who decides. Um, and in countries that have tried to move in this direction have realized very quickly that the timeline is far too aggressive and they need to scale it way back. And then you know, it gets into an issue of like, at what point are you no longer effective? At what point does the law lose all its meaning? But there is then, you know, this is one tack uh, to deal with this problem, which is to say, law enforcement, so much of an ideational insurgency is about what is said online. So if we could clamp down on what is said online, then the problem would in itself disappear or at least be mitigated. But it comes with a whole lot of baggage. Uh, and right now in the United States in particular, given its very uh, special uh, relationship to, to the First Amendment, this is even more complicated in some respects. Uh, and the, the sort of prevailing understanding of, of uh, illegal norms is that social media companies are not responsible in one way or another for anything that's said on them. I mean, you know, with a few extreme examples uh, uh, not included. Uh, I think that conversation is probably going to evolve in the next few years. I think this whole, you know, the infamous Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, I think we are in the process of reinterpreting it and so that the government can work more closely together with uh, social media companies in a sort of a, a common interest, uh, but also perhaps uh, sanction those that repeatedly host terrorist content and do nothing about it, even when they have been informed. Uh, but I don't. But I don't know. Even if we do move towards that type of um, reinterpretation, uh, th- th- I don't think that this would be a sufficient response necessarily to the problem, because so much content is going to slip through. So much content is just not um, stark enough to be captured. Uh, and, and so much of it is also, in a sense, uh, a, a cumulative effect of online communication over time rather than one thing that, that needs our specific attention. And so we're going to have to complement the sort of the suppressive law enforcement uh, piece of this with uh, a better understanding of how to limit both the, um, the resonance uh, of or, or the, the, perhaps the reach of, of some of these things, but also the receptivity to it or the susceptibility of these messages amongst the population. And that gets in, into really difficult questions. I mean, you know, you're then talking about fostering individual and societal resilience. There's already been a lot of discussion about uh, uh, preventing violent extremism, countering violent extremism, and the prevent strategy in, in the UK, for, for example. But as we also know, even though this is often a, a key pillar of um, counterterrorism, that is to say, you know, addressing the susceptibility of to, to the message, in execution, it is as likely to cause exactly the alienation and, and anger that we're trying to address because of, you know, stigmatizing an entire community. Or, or like if you think, for example, that because you voted Trump, uh, you are more likely to embrace right-wing violent extremism, and then you're looking at half of the country half of the population in the United States is being, you know, potentially, you know, terrorist, which is clearly, you know, just counterproductive and, and, and not at all, uh, yeah, not at all helpful. So how do you target these measures? How do you make sure that you are um, addressing the right drivers for the right individual? I mean, people come to these types of ideologies for a host of different reasons. 
So it's it's like it's fantastic maybe in theory, but in its application, it can be just extremely delicate. And it's like a, a sort of an ethical and strategic minefield for governments to get into. Uh, there is anecdotal evidence that it works, but there's also anecdotal evidence that it does not. And so one of the things that I call for in the book is if, if we're going to do this sort of preventing violent extremism, we need to be far more careful and judicious about what that actually means uh, to, to show our metrics or our measures of effectiveness uh, and not to just sort of apply it because it, it sort of sounds good in theory. Because I think that's actually, have been, it has been an extremely problematic approach to um, dealing with uh, violent extremism, both in the UK and the US and in other contexts. Um, and, and then another sort of, you know, alternative, I guess, that I, I dwell on a little bit is the notion of, uh, you know, societies, we really need to, in a sense, evolve to meet this challenge. Uh, and then we get into conversations about media literacy or, or digital literacy. And we seem to have those conversations every time a new medium of communication comes on board, which we're not quite ready for societally. And, and so how do we, in a sense, render a population better equipped to deal with the disinformation, the conspiracy theories, um, and the sophistry and everything else that is used to radicalize individual users of the internet at this point. And uh, the good news is that there is a host of different initiatives out there already. It seems like, you know, school curricula, civil society, NGOs, and even the private sector, Facebook, Google, etc., are funding various programs to try to bring that digital literacy to a higher level. Uh, so that's great. Uh, but I think the complicating aspect here, which I bring out in the book, is that ultimately divisions in how we view the world lie at the root of our susceptibility to whatever message might be out there. And so in a sense, developing media or digital literacy and hoping that that's going to address those divisions or schisms in society is maybe uh, overly hopeful. Uh, it's one thing uh, if you have a fairly cohesive or, or united or stable society and you can sort of talk about what is disinformation, what is not uh, in a very constructive manner. But I have to say, like living in the United States right now and looking at the polling in terms of who believes or how many people believe that the 2020 election was fraudulent, uh, how many people actually have some sort of sympathetic look or, or view of uh, QAnon, QAnon conspiracy theory, how many people... Uh, think that the, uh, it was actually uh, Antifa that launched the uh, uh, insurrection at the Capitol building. I mean, how do you, with, with that type of deep, deep uh, division, even on things that are, should be sort of you know, factually verifiable, how, who defines what it means to be digitally literate or media literate? I mean, I certainly have my answer, but I also know that my answer is not going exactly be very popular in another context, in another bubble in this country. And so what's the common ground around which we can actually have the conversation about media literacy? And, and it really gets deep into questions of epistemology and of trust. You know, what are our common trusted authorities in this country today? Uh, and if we can't figure that out, then what do we mean by a, a, a truthful or a trusted source? Um, and, and unfortunately, we almost need to start at the bottom. That is to say, <laughs> you have to deal with the issues first, perhaps more, or the, the sources of division, more than just thinking that media literacy is going to save the day. Because I think media literacy, in a sense, presupposes a common ground that perhaps is not there at present. And so the challenge then will be, how do we actually get to that first step? Fair enough. Um, as 
you've said and I've said, um, this, this is essentially a taste of what's in the book. Um, so it's a really good example, I think, as well, of how the book covers um, quite a lot of time, but in a very productive way. Uh, we started off this interview looking at changes since the Cold War, um, changes between the, the later stages of the Cold War and the immediate aftermath. Um, we've talked about insurgencies, some of which have concluded, some of which have not, and we're now all the way up to really, really open questions, um, which is, I think, a really good kind of overview of the territory that the book covers, um, as well as being a sort of cheeky way of me trying to make everything about general history, because that is the channel that we are on. Um, so now that we've kind of covered the book in as much detail as is possible in an interview, um, I was wondering if you could let us behind the scenes a little bit. Was there something you came across during the research or writing of this book that surprised you? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question, and and there are maybe a fair few different surprises as I as I wrote it, but uh, I'll try to focus my mind on on the main one. Um, I I would say just tying it into what you just said, I guess um, one surprise for me was just how many facets there are to insurgency and encounter insurgency. If you just take a step back and and not focus so exclusively on the military challenge. Because the military challenge has led to a whole range of scholarship on, you know, jungle operations or intelligence usage or do drone strikes work, etc. And of course, most of our conversation about insurgency and counterinsurgency is conducted within military circles and within military communities. But to my mind, you know, insurgency is a political animal, you know, and and so it has social and economic and political uh, dimensions, drivers, enablers, etc. And we need to make sure that we understand those uh, to actually craft a more productive response. Uh, and that gets us into lots of different things. Like, for example, what is, what is the limit of democracy when you're faced with anti-democratic parties? Do we bring them in in the hope that, that that will moderate them? Or do we exclude them and therefore also perhaps tarnish the fabric of society? You know, what is the role, as you mentioned, of trust and epistemology and understanding online radicalization? And disinformation, what is disinformation? You know, there's so many different dimensions to this that I actually found a nice surprise for me as I went through this book was the breadth of topics that I felt uh, compelled to to uh, consider and, and to write about and to research and to learn about, frankly. I mean, it's an education. And the purpose of the book is really, in a sense, uh, you know, without being too grandiose about it, to 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 provide others, uh, other people who are interested in insurgency and counterinsurgency, a taste of some of the broader components and dynamics that that uh, I think will mark uh, conflict, political conflict in years to come. And that brings me to the second surprising element, I guess, which is that, you know, anyone who is uh, at all familiar with what, I, with what I've written about in the past, a lot of it has to do with, you know, we have to do better at counterinsurgency. We have to, in a sense, you know, uh, refine uh, our, our methods, etc. And, and so there's a little bit of a contradiction here because, you know, this book is in a sense grounded in this notion that, well, maybe we do need to do better, but certainly it doesn't seem like doing what we're doing is resulting in a bunch of insurgents winning. Afghanistan is a, a counterexample to that, but we can deal with that. Um, and so in a sense, a surprise for me was thinking like, well, maybe we're just doing good enough. It's not pretty. A lot of it is very uh, coercive. It's palliative. It's suppressive, uh, even repressive. But it's it was a... It was a um, a discovery for me, I guess, that despite all of the errors of our ways, 
and we we complain about how you know robust peacekeeping doesn't work and NATO is failing and we're failing here and we're failing there whatever it seems to be that most states actually survive nonetheless even very weak and impoverished states survive and that was that was a surprise to me and I was thinking is this it or or do we need to then think about what lies around the corner what's going to happen you know when when insurgents think this is not working we're not even we're not making headway. How can we do things differently? Uh, and, and of course, you know, as the, the book would be far shorter if I thought that this was it. I do think that there are challenges that we are not quite awake to and that we should think more carefully about, um, which is exactly why I wrote the book and, and thought about questions of response. Amazing. Thank you. Um, and as the traditional last question, the book has just come out. So obviously, the last question needs to be, what are you working on next? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have an idea. And uh, I'll give you a sneak preview. I'm not sure whether it's going to actually lead anywhere. I hope it will, but it might be too grandiose for me to take on. Uh, I, I, I do work for the Department of Defense uh, here in the United States. And so a lot of our discussion now has to do with the strategic competition between the US and China and US and Russia and so on. And so um, much as insurgency and counterinsurgency is sort of a competition for legitimacy and it has to, to do with mobilizing the people, etc., uh, I, 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 I tend to look at the global competition between these states in a similar way. So how do we compete? How does the United States compete for legitimacy vis-a-vis China in, for example, Africa or Latin America, what have you? Uh, how does the median or Eastern European country know whether to support NATO and the West, or to throw in their lot with uh, Russia in the hope of, of something different. Um, and it seems to me that those kinds of uh, discussions are quite germane, not least what's happening in, in Ukraine right now, and the efforts to really, in a sense, you know, mobilize a global coalition to sanction and to condemn uh, what Russia's doing. Uh, but anyway, that leads me to the question that I would like to pursue, which is really, you know, what is it that the West or the United States is really, in a sense, uh, fighting for? What are the values that we uh, say that we stand for? Do we stand for them? And what is the sort of the Chinese or the Russian uh, answer to that? Uh, and so this is a little bit inspired by um, a recent book that I just read, which was uh, Past and Perfect by Tony Jutt, when he talks about the, the role of uh, French intellectuals in the 1950s who were sort of shilling for the Soviet Union because they were so eager for a new ideological project to pursue. And they saw within communism perhaps a promise for something more grand, sort of, yeah, something, a, a model, a blueprint that they could pursue. And of course, as the Soviet Union starts to you know, engage in show trials and you have the gulags and the pogroms, etc., um, that defense becomes increasingly difficult. Some stop, some try to continue to make sense of it all. And there's sort of a latent, amongst those who are the most forgiving of the, of, of the Soviet Union, there is um, uh, often a latent anti-Americanism. That is to say, well, fine, maybe Stalin did that, but look at what the United States, you know, the whataboutism. Uh, and I see similar conversations today. I mean, particularly when I engage with perhaps European audience or people outside of the United States, there is sort of a, a you know, well, one's as bad as the other. And I, I, again, this is why this may not happen, because it gets into a very difficult uh, territory. But personally, as, as an individual in this time, uh, I think I would like to explore what is it that we're actually fighting about, you know, and what are we, what are we fighting for? What are we actually trying to, what, what's the vision that we should be pursuing? Why should I, as a private individual, feel 
um, you know, supportive or enamored with what the U.S. is doing as opposed to what China is doing? What's the best argument? And, and conversely. And so I'd like to get into that issue, you know, the role of values in strategic competition. Uh, and, and I realize that it might be a very dispiriting uh, project because perhaps, you know, there is no place for values in strategic competition. And it's just about, you know, um, empire building, or neo-imperialism or whatever, uh, profit, interest, uh, power politics. Uh, I am Swedish by, by uh, birth, and maybe I've inherited sort of a, a soft spot for this idea that there's something, you know, grander out there, something, you know, more meaningful. But, uh, you know, that, that's also, so I have a personal interest for doing this, and I think also a, a broader sort of a research interest in it. How do you compete for legitimacy? How do you mobilize people or states? Uh, and um, um, what, what are the challenges uh, to, that, to that struggle? Well, that is a big project, so best yeah. of luck with that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But while you're off doing that, listeners can read your current book titled The Insurgent's Dilemma, which just came out in 2022, published by Hearst. Um, Dr. David Ucko, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a delight uh, to hear the people who are being interested in my work. Uh, yeah, I've enjoyed this chat a lot and um, hopefully more to come. <laughs>